Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Previously on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. You look at a guy like Jalen Brown, for example, who I think is a really good straight-line driver, great cornerball three-point shooter, and there was this period of time where he wasn't really looking for those things. He was just trying to do whatever the coaches asked him to do, and that was be a defender. But the problem for Jalen was he's a pretty good scorer, too. I mean, people forget only one guy on the team averaged more points than him last year, and that was Kyrie Irving. So he knows this, he, and he worked on his game to become more of an offensive threat and to get to camp and then find out, well, we know you can get buckets. We know that. But we need you to do this defensive thing first. And him trying to find that balance between the two has been difficult. That was today's guest in his first appearance on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks exactly one year ago this week. That is so cool. He was talking about how Jalen Brown's growth as a player was affected by the presence of Kyrie Irving. Later in the show, we'll go to that. We'll also discuss the last dance. Of course, the possible return of the NBA and so much more. But first... Darling, you can't take no breaks on the pandemic. Let's run it. Buckets, Boards and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Thanks, Darlene. Sherrod Blakely is the Celtics insider for NBC Sports Boston. His career has taken him from sunny and warm, even though I'm not a fan of these folks, Syracuse, to Raleigh, to Detroit, and now to Boston. Sherrod, thanks for joining us. And did we miss any stops along the way? Oh, my Hoya homegirl. How you doing? How you doing? (laughs) You got that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, indeedy. Uh, Spent a little time in Raleigh, North Carolina, which was sunny, warm. Syracuse. Not so much. <laughs> not so much. Um, well, we're definitely pumped to have you back on the show. Are you? No, you're not our first repeat. But we're, we love having repeats on because we love the repertoire here on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. But we got to get into the NBA, which obviously is part of your wheelhouse and the Boston Celtics in particular. But before that, Sherrod, The Last Dance is captivating all of America every Sunday night and produces endless think pieces and podcasts just like this one, talking about it a little bit more. But I think one of the big takeaways from episodes seven and eight was MJ's leadership style and his relationship with his teammates. Now, as a guy that has spent time in present day NBA locker rooms, what were your takeaways watching that episode? Bravo, bravo. I, the thing about the, the NBA back then, and, and, and it's a little bit different now, is that players were more from the what I like to call the straight no chaser school of handling your business. 
Uh, Michael was just not the least bit apologetic or, or, or compromising in what he felt he needed to do to get his teammates ready to not just play and compete, but win at the highest level. And again, it may seem a little bit unorthodox and it may rub some people the wrong way. But to me, it's all about the end results. And, and for Michael Jordan, the end result mattered so much more than the actual journey or process to get there. And, I, you know, this day and age, I'm not sure if players have that same mindset because you got to remember, you know, Michael was, you know, basically the blueprint for branding if you are an NBA player. And so he didn't have a lot of the, the comforts that players today have as far as thinking about their image and wanting to have a certain look and, and, and not want to rub, you know, certain guys the wrong way because we got the same agent. And what if that agent looks out for them more than me? Michael didn't have any of that baggage to deal with. Michael was all about winning and winning in a way that he felt he could do and he could bring his teammates along with him. But before they could come along with him, they had to be ready. They had to go through that 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 fire. And, and, and Michael, you know, he brought that smoke, that heat, that fire every day. Okay. All right. Great. We love it, right? In theory, he was consistent. I think the most poignant line to me was he wasn't asking, I don't know if he said it or BJ said it, somebody said it, that he was not asking his teammates to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. Exactly. Exactly. Ever. And Bruce, feel free to jump in on this one. Chalk it up to me being a millennial, if you'd like. I just wonder, like, as much as we want to be consistent, I feel like there had to be guys who felt like they got it worse from Mike compared to others. Like, everybody can't be all rosy. Mike was great. Like, it was worth it because we won as a teammate. Although I know, like, I will acknowledge that Mike has a hand in this production. Like, I just feel like this is being glamified just a little bit too much. And I need somebody to keep it a buck. Oh, it, it's definitely being glamified. I mean, th there's a reason why that almost every shaping of this narrative ha ends with a happy ending for Michael Jordan. But mm -hmm. to your point, I agree. I, I definitely think that some players, some of his teammates caught it worse than others. I mean, you know, Steve Kerr, he got that eye jammed up mm -hmm. by Michael. Horace Grant didn't have that happen to him. Scottie Pippen didn't get that eye jammed up. Uh, you start going down, uh, Ron Harper, I know didn't get that eye jammed up because I know Ron, that definitely wasn't going to happen. And that's no knock against Steve Kerr, but Michael knew there were certain guys whose buttons he could push and other guys whose buttons he could smash and yeah. reprogram and build them up from the ground up. And Steve Kerr, and I, again, I, I think it's really helped Steve Kerr as a head coach to understand how to micromanage uber-talented players in a way that breeds success because he he knows what it's like to be you know that seventh man on a, a team of really great players and he knows he knows how to manage all those egos and it's helped him but to, to your point that bulls those bulls teams michael had to be that type of dude in order to for them those teams to have success because to me when i look at the teams that that he led to championships and you start looking at the teams they had to get through to win those championships if you look at the rosters from top to bottom, Chicago was not the best team. Many of those years, Utah had a better team from top to bottom. You know, mm -hmm. the Celtics had a better team a couple of those years from top to bottom. But Michael was able to will those guys on his team, get them tough enough both physically and mentally to not only withstand his wrath, but the wrath of his opponents. Because anything he, anything they went through on the court, it paled in comparison to what he put them through. And that was the point of why he was so hard on them. Now, see... I think Michael lacks a little bit of self-awareness in that statement that Monica gave us to start. Come that on. is, I never asked my teammates to do anything that I wasn't going to do. Really? 
your teammates couldn't do any of the stuff that you could do. <laughs> you might have you might have asked them to do what you could do, but it's not like they could or even really come that close. Right. Yeah, and, and that and that makes it very easy to make that statement because if I can do one through ten and you can only do one through four, well, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything that I can't do because I can do everything. And I, I get that. But I, I think what Michael was trying to do was get those guys to elevate their minds from a mental toughness standpoint to maybe do some things that maybe they from their skill set they're not equipped to do. When you think about the big shots that Paxson hit, the big shots that Kerr hit, I'm not convinced that if Michael wasn't so hard on those guys, they would have been ready for those moments. I'm not convinced that they would not have choked when the pressure was on the line. Because as much as those moments were pressure-packed, dealing with Michael, if you missed that shot, I don't think any one of them would have won that smoke. As a shooter during my collegiate uh, career, Sherrod, I'm going to have to just pump the brakes just a little bit because shooters shoot to get hot and shooters shoot to stay hot. So I would argue that if Paxson and Kerr were just as open, it's like riding a bike, baby. <laughs> I, I, You know what? I, I just I, I can't get past the fact that Michael was so hard on those guys that they didn't feel a little bit of pressure to a little bit more pressure than they normally would. Um, because I don't I just don't think that was a, a, a typical era of basketball i mean to your point monica yes yeah, shoot or shoot and then and that's not going to change but when you've got the greatest player on the planet on your butt 24 7 365 i'm not sure that sweet release is going to not be a little little bit tight just a little bit tight that's all i'm saying i'll give you that I'll give, all right so look i want to spin it forward then bruce unless i'm curious to see what you say not from a pure talent level right like we get the mj braun comparisons but who's a guy that both of you had an opportunity to cover um that pushed his teammates the way mike did like what's who who can we compare in the leadership space in oh, the present goodness. day yeah i mean the, the the one guy that when i think about uh, really pushing pushing his team to maybe uh a level that they weren't going to necessarily get there and and he did this in such a subtle way that um he's never going to ever get his credits due is Rasheed Wallace Ooh, um, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that from the time he got to Detroit they all of a sudden went from a team that yeah maybe they can get out of the first round to a team that wins a title and goes on that ridiculous run of getting to the conference finals the thing that he did and then I saw this up close day in and day out is he took all the heat Every time there was something bad or negative, he took that upon himself and said, I got this, but y'all need to step up and play because I am I may not have a great game, but I'm going to show up. And I may not play great, but I'm going to show up. And, I, and it, it, to me, he elevated the play of all those guys around him because he was, to me, the best player pound for pound talent-wise on that team, but he had a 10-day contract mentality. And that – for that group was was incredible. I remember when we were in Indiana, uh, and Rasheed Wallace is is basically he was like the Pied Piper of Media Day, where he's talking about you know they will not win Game Two. You could put that on the front page, back page. Indiana Pacers will not win Game Two. Now, mind you, we are in Indiana. Mind <laughs> you, we are in their gym, and it it was just it was the most surreal moment. And I remember sitting down with Lindsey Hunter. And talking to him afterwards, and Lindsay and I, and Lindsay was like, "What are you talking about?" And, I'm, and I told him, he's just like, "Well, I guess we got to go out there and win that game, huh?" And that's just how that was one of those real come together 
subtle but very effective moments that not only changed the trajectory of that series, but it changed the trajectory of that organization going forward. They would not have won a title if he would have just played it safe and just not really challenged his teammates to step up and elevate their play. Um, he Again, he, he doesn't get nearly the kind of credit I think he has as a leader uh, because he's such uh, just a, a different kind of guy. Uh, and, yes, he can be a pain in the butt. I Firsthand, I will admit that. But he's one of my – he's probably one of the more favorite players I've ever covered in any sport uh, just because there's so much more to him than he ever let on. Uh, him and I have had conversations about NASCAR. Uh, we've talked about Genghis Khan. And let me just tell you right now, the topic of NASCAR, the topic of Genghis Khan, he brought those to me, not the other way around. So that's how just out there his, his mind is. And, from a talent again, I, I've said this in Boston, and, and you know it's, it's sacrilegious to say this, but if you're talking pound for pound talent, he was as good or better than Kevin Garnett. If you're talking sheer talent, sheer ability. Now, if you throw in the factor of desire to be the man and to carry a team and do all that, KG, I give him that. Uh, yeah. As far as defense, I would probably give KG a little bit of edge just because he played, I think, with a greater intensity. But if you talk about you know, scoring, rebound, defending, passing, making your teammates better, which I call the five tools of talented greats. He's right up there. He is as good, if not better. I remember that team very well. I mean, I, I have some experiences with them too. And one of the things I remember was she came over like during the season in a trade. Okay. And as soon as he got there, he gave them the swagger that they really sort of didn't have. Remember the wrestling, the championship belt that he yes, used to bring the around? Belt. Yeah, he had he had the belt. And and that was like, you know, that was like, OK, here it is. Here we are. You know, we're a bunch of badasses. Deal with it. Exactly. I that. I, I, that team, I remember or the, o, the O4 squad, right? They won the title yeah. before. I, my best friend was a huge Kobe fan. Love Kobe. That's great. Uh, she was rooting for the Lakers. But I remember being like, Detroit about to beat them. Like, this is about to be a thing. And that chant of Detroit basketball, um, just I just annoyed everybody with that because I was running around the house saying <laughs> I love that selection because I think it does a fantastic job. And although you're saying that his talent was underrated and you definitely probably can dig in the numbers and see that, but it really does talk about the leadership piece, right? And I just think in today's culture, we love big stars. We love the bronze, the Giannis's, the so on and so forth. But I'm always curious, Sherrod, about the leadership component. And you're probably spot on about Steve Kerr's experience as a bull being able to help him manage Golden State. Because when I posed that question to y'all, I wondered if we would give Draymond Green any of that conversation in terms of a guy that really pushes his teammates, or is he just vocal? I think he's just he's just a lot of smoke. Uh, not a lot of fire, not as much fire as smoke. Uh, I, I, Draymond is a good player, but I don't see what he does transferring to any in, in most teams, frankly. I, I think he'd be a good player on most teams, but I don't think he'd be a great as great a player as he is for Golden State. Uh, his, his leadership, uh, it's, it's, um, it's different. It's a different kind of leadership. Uh, I, I look at his, the guys around him. Uh, I look at, frankly, Clay Thompson. I look at Steph. I look at those guys as, as being more of the leaders of that team. Uh, Draymond is the one that talks a lot, but I think the one that they look to the one that they respect the most, uh, I think it's Steph. I think it's Clay. Uh, I, I think Draymond, and, and and part of it is, is some of the things that Draymond does outside of the scope of basketball. I mean, kicking guys in the uprights, no, not good, okay. not good. That 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 just it, it kind of hurts your credibility as a leader when you're doing stuff like that. 
Um, but again, from a talent standpoint, he's a good player, but I just don't, I don't see him as an elite leader uh, when, when you're talking about uh, leading a basketball team. I really think that Draymond cost them a four-peat. They would have won four in a row if he hadn't got himself suspended for what you just described. Yeah. Um, you know, again, there's other things that could have happened, obviously, but you know right. what? They lost in seven and they were up three, one and he got suspended. So yeah, just my two cents. All right. So I, I veered a little bit. We were, the first part of our combo was on the last dance. Um, your biggest takeaway so far, Sherrod, I mean, this has just been interesting to hear different journalists kind of look at what was compared to what is, and even the storytelling of the last dance, what's been your biggest takeaways? Well, uh, you know, the, a lot of the voices that you hear are, are voices that you um, you expect to hear. Uh, the, for me, the, the big takeaway is just um, just how fearful guys were of Michael. I mean, when you even when they talk about him now, you know, and they, they talk about it at that period of time, it's one thing to respect your teammate and, and, and appreciate his talents and, and him as a leader. But no, they were scared of that dude. He had them scared to death. Uh, and, and that to me is, is really telling. And I, and I, I get where Michael before all this came out was talking about, you know, I, I don't want people to think bad of me. Sorry, bro. Too bad. Um, it's a, that, listen, that, that, that horse has left the stable and is not getting brought back in. Uh, you were a badass. You were a guy that just really, you know, if I were your teammate, I probably wouldn't like you in that moment, but in retrospect, yeah. We won a lot of championships. You probably made me a better player. Probably in doing that made me more money, although Scotty Pippen would suggest otherwise. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I know I was personally and I, caught off guard when Mike got emotional talking about how much he gave to the game and how much winning mattered to him. Um, you don't see him get choked up ever. Hardly, right? Well, that's not true. He gave us some fantastic memes, so that's not entirely true. But yes, yes. that moment, even, okay, so right, I've never achieved what Michael achieved, but I did understand what it was to be the leader in terms of being the bad guy and to love the game that much that you were willing to just give and give and give. I just, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I, I just keep having this asterisk, Sherrod, because I feel like he's got creative control. Like, he's telling the story that he wants to tell. Yeah, and I think that that you know, and, and to a certain extent, it hurts the credibility of the piece uh, from a journalistic standpoint. But from a sheer entertainment value, at a time when there's just not a lot of entertainment to be valuing, yeah. now that's unique and different content. Uh, he's giving the people what they want, and that it's to me that's just part of the narrative that has always been there for Michael Jordan: giving the people what they want, and them not necessarily knowing they need that, or they necessarily knowing that's something they want. Uh, I don't. I don't think this documentary would be nearly as as titillating and, and sexy and, and, and provocative if we had games going on, if we were in the middle of the playoffs. This would have been just another, you know, just a little, oh, yeah, it's a nice little documentary that they're doing over there. No, it has become a centerpiece, a must-see television type of event because there's literally nothing else is competing against. Uh, and, and that, you know, it, it takes, again, the fact that there's not real competition, the fact that you know, Michael is, has the creative control to, to craft and shape this the way he sees fit. Uh, it makes you, to your point, you, you, you kind of look at it a little bit sideways. You're like, hey, this is great, but this is kind of Mike's show. So, you know, Boom. I mean, I, I look at, I mean, there, there's so many guys that they've spent very little, if no time talking to for this. And that bugs me. 
Uh, like, I want to hear more from Reggie Miller. I want to hear more from – I want to hear more about Scottie Pippen's narrative because I, I thought, to me, that was, like, some of the most compelling stuff where he's talking about, you know, his, his dad who was, who was in a wheelchair and his brother who was, you know, you know, you know, disabled and his contract situation, how basically they, you know, he, he took a bad deal that his agent didn't want him to take and, and everyone around him said, don't do it. And he still did it because it gave him security. That's the kind of stuff I want to just gobble that up. I, I don't care about, you know, Scott Burrell trying to guard you and you giving him the mean mug and, and, and you talk about him and, and making him embarrassed. And I don't care about all that much, Mike. I want to hear that other stuff. But again, what are my alternatives? Uh, you know, axe throwing competitions, marbles racing down the road. Facts. That might that documentary is looking real good right now. When I look at some of the other options out there, <laughs> this was supposed this was supposed to be released during the NBA Finals in June, where they were going to run them like on the nights where there were no games, whatever. Right. Which would have been a really cool had it had it worked out the way I had predicted with the Lakers making the finals this year. I thought it would have been really cool because then this would have also had a little angle of sort of a LeBron Mike dynamic, yeah. you know, and uh, you know, Monica and I have talked about this many times. I'm like the biggest LeBron James fan there is. I mean, he's never played on a team that I root for, but I think all around he's the greatest all around player I've seen. And I know all the MJ people will tell me I'm tripping, whatever. So that that's cool. But the difference, I think one of the differences between the way MJ leads and the way LeBron leads, LeBron truly loves his teammates. He really does. Once they become his teammates, he loves them. MJ tolerated his teammates. <laughs> and I think that the warmth between them, you know, there's obviously going to be a different relationship between the big guy and the, the supporting cast. Yeah. Well, I think part, part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, LeBron, you know, he's – I just think the way LeBron came up through basketball puts him in a different mindset than Michael. Uh, you know, he, he was the big, I mean, LeBron was the biggest thing in the nation as a high school kid. And he had a lot of people reaching for him, trying to, to, you know, really kind of be part of his entourage. And, and he had to really figure out who's family and who's not. Whereas Michael, I mean, remember when he got to Carolina, uh, well, even before he got to Carolina, I mean, he got cut from his varsity team uh, when he was in high school. Uh, which he, he still holds a chip on his shoulder about that. He gets to Carolina. Uh, there's this guy named James Worthy who's pretty good uh, that, you know, uh, he's, he knows from day one he had to take a little bit of a backseat. But that didn't stop him from going at James Worthy in practice. And then you get to the NBA. Even though you had this great college career, you're not the number one pick. You're not the number two pick. You're number three. You've got two cats that they believe are better than you. And yes, that was part of his chip on his shoulder as well. So Michael has always, I think, had this chip on his shoulder that allowed him to understand that I'm great and I need people around me who I can elevate in the process. But make no mistake about it, there's only one indisposable element to this family. Right. That's me. Right. So right. Craig Hodges, I love you. You can knock down threes. Steve Kerr, Paxson, get in here. He, that's just how he is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Charles Oakley, I know you, my dog. I love you to death, but Bill Cartwright is a better fit for us. Yeah. Just it is. And, yeah. and so I think, I think Michael, in his mind, from a very early point in his career, just kind of compartmentalized the fact that I'm a great player. I'm going to need to elevate those around me. And it's not going to be 
it's going to be a business. He, I, I think he treated the game like a business that, you know, has disposable parts other than himself. Now, is that right? I mean, that's, that's debatable. But I think do think that's kind of the mindset that he came up with uh, as a basketball player. Um, I think that's a great point. And, but I definitely want to pivot to some of the news that is coming down uh, this week in terms of the NBA restarting. But before we go, just from a journalistic perspective, uh, I knew that there were reports that tried to link Mike's dad's tragic accident right. to his gambling debts and all that stuff. What do you remember of that? And were people, was it just like columnists kind of pontificating or was were there people trying to make strong ties? Well, you, you have to remember, well, at, at that time, I mean, I was, I think I was uh, either near the end of college or just starting off uh, in, in a business. But I, I just remember that was pre-social media. So it really wasn't, uh, it didn't have the kind of, it didn't resonate nationally the way I it, it did until years after the fact, I, I thought. Uh, I remember reading about it in, in, in different newspapers, uh, but it, it seemed that it was more of a, um, hey, I got this theory, and my theory is if X happened and Y happened, then maybe X and Y can create that. Uh, it seemed more theoretical than actual news-based uh, journalism. And, 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 and for me, that's why I, I didn't put a ton of stock into it because there weren't any journalists that were making clear and undeniable connections between what he did from a gambling standpoint and his, his father's death. Uh, and, and, and for that matter, uh, Michael seemed very kind of nonchalant about the fact that his father would pull over to the side of the road and just, just rest for a little bit. That, and, and as, as someone who has family, uh, who, were raised in the South, that's not that unusual. Uh, it, because, it, you know, in their time, that, you know, if you see someone on the side of the road and they're just sleeping, you're thinking, oh, he just got tired, so they just take a little nap, and you just keep going. Um, it, it, it really did feel more random. Now, if, let's say, Michael's dad were murdered at his home and people broke in and they did something like that, that would raise much more... Uh, I think some of those questions and concerns might be a little bit more validated if that had happened. But for him to be doing what a lot of people in the South do, which is pull over to the side road, take a little rest, and for him to be, you know, the car, you know, ransacked and him killed, uh, which is uh, obviously, you know, you you don't want to see or hear anything like that happen. But it wasn't unusual for what his father did as far as pulling over to the side of the road at, at that point in time. Okay. And that's that's news to me. I I thought it was odd, but hey, Monica, I I remember it. I remember it pretty well. And I never believed that gambling was the reason that that I never believed that because here's why: number one, no one ever said he bet on basketball. Okay, right. so you go so you go into a casino; it's perfectly legal to go bet. Right. So I just never. I mean, and David Stern said it in the in the show. Uh, God rest his soul. We love David Stern. He said. He was the MVP of our sport. Right. Why, you know, why on earth would I, you know, want him out of the game? Would, the whole thing was stupid. Yeah. Right. And, if, right. and if there were some serious concerns about Michael and his gambling and money was an issue there, the, the, the Bulls ownership would have, they would have made sure that it got taken care of. That's, a, there's, that's no, a, there's no good, doubt in my mind. Yeah. That's a really good point. Right? All right. So boom, the last dance <laughs> guys, what are we going to do on Sunday night when it ends? The end is approaching. This pod is dropping on Thursday. Last two episodes coming out on a Sunday. But- billions. Billions is Sunday night, Monica. Billions. Uh, oh, okay. Billions. <laughs> uh, check that out. <laughs> Sorry. Um- Didn't mean to interrupt your flow. 
<laughs> the new news. Well, we're on, what are we recording on a Wednesday, May thirteenth? The NBA is looking to restart seriously, Sherrod. Like, okay, here's my thing: NBA, MLB, NHL, WNBA. My small soapbox has always been how best to make sure the athletes are comfortable, not in a sense of comfortable plush hotel, but that their families are safe, that the risk is as low as it possibly can be. They're going to have to acknowledge some risk. I get it. That's just how transmittable this disease is. But in that, it's not just about being in a bubble. Like these guys have chefs or whatever. Like they have small children. A friend of mine who has a toddler said, if he gets sick, only one of us can stay at the hospital and we have to stay, we have to live there if something happens. So there's so many layers of this thing in terms of how we would define comfortable. But our buddy in an ABJ, Chris Hayes, part of the squad that's reporting that the prominent players in the league all agree more players want this to happen than not. In your mind, Sherrod, what is this going to look like? Who's going to have the final say? I mean, just where do we even go from here? Well, I think the first thing that, that has to happen, Monica, and, and, and this, it's, it's a simple statement, but I think it's much, much more involved and complicated. Players have to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, whenever they return to the floor, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be ideal. There has to be some degree of compromise that they're going to have to take on uh, in order for the season to resume. Now, what they're trying to figure out, and, and the NBA is, is doing their part to try to help with this, is try to find that, to me, that, that crossroads between minimal risk and potential treatments in case uh, someone does test positive. Because, look, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, if, we, if we're watching NBA basketball, even if it's without fans in the next two, three months, uh, someone is going to test positive. Uh, I'm absolutely 100% convinced of that. Uh, and to me, the challenge that the NBA has is what are we going to do when that happens? Are we going to just simply quarantine that individual and keep the games going? Are we going to just shut everything down, which I think would be a horrible idea? Uh, I, they have to find that, that, to me, that happy medium where players are comfortable with being uncomfortable. And let me be clear. I don't think it has to be a unanimous type thing. I don't even think it has to be like 98%. It just has to be, to me, a significant number of players who want to resume playing. And there has to be, in my opinion, you need your what I call top shelf talent to buy in. If LeBron James doesn't want to play, if Chris Paul doesn't want to play, if Giannis Antetokounmpo don't want to play, guess what? Y'all ain't playing. Because right, yeah. if, if the big dogs don't want to want to get out there and bark – no one is trying to hear the little puppies and the little, you know, the little pit bulls and the little baby, little baby dogs out there. No one wants to hear them. Okay, so you bring up a really good point in terms of this presumable. We, we, I mean, just at the rate of this disease, what we know, if someone tests positive. Okay, so a single test may not shut it down. But let's go back to how the the, the WBA, the NBA, shut down when it happened. Right? We get an official running out on the court. OKC, stop the game before it happens. We go back and contact Trace, to use a word that we're hearing in the media, teams that played the Jazz. It wasn't just Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Like, that thing quickly spread. So I guess my concern in terms of the safety and I guess the ethics of it, and I know there's a camp that's saying the NBA is paying for their tests. Um, it's not uh, rich people getting tests and regular people that need them can't get them type deal. It's not that simple. I get that. 
But I do understand why people would still be bucking at this idea of testing players on a regular because you could take a test on Monday, miss something, and the test be different by Saturday, have played in a game, and boom, Sherrod, like, I just don't know, like, and then if a guy has someone in their home in their or in their family who's one of those high-risk patients, whether it be age or previous conditions, like, if a guy doesn't want to play, then what? And you have a legitimate argument. If Carl Anthony Towns doesn't want any parts of this, can you blame him? Yeah. I mean, I, you, you absolutely can understand why Carl Anthony Towns or anyone who has a loved one with a compromised immune system would be hesitant to get back out there. But again, that, that raises the question. At what point will you be comfortable getting back out there? I mean, th- does there have to be a cure, a vaccine, and a 99.9% chance of you not getting it before you're comfortable playing again? Um, I, I just, it's a, it's a hard question to get, get, to get a, to, for there to be a right or wrong answer to. But I think ultimately players are going to have to embrace some level of discomfort when they come back on the floor and find a way to navigate around that. Uh, now, should they get back out there now? I don't think so. Um, I would like to see there more of a pattern uh, of a decline as far as the people who are testing positive. Uh, but again, there's never going to be a perfect solution to this. Uh, but the NBA, I, I, I will say this. I mean, they were the first league to, to react to this in a very strong, you know, we're shutting it down manner. Uh, and I know they, w- they would have liked to have been the first to get back going. But you, you see that, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, 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 this thing has become far more complicated, convoluted, and, and frankly challenging uh, than anyone, uh, including the NBA, has, has bargained for. Yeah, for sure. I think I was reading one of your columns recently, Sherrod, where you uh, where you, you were you were uh, writing about how the league has created like this group of players to kind of talk with management. I think Russell Westbrook was in there, and CP3, right. and Kyle Lowry, and Boston's very own Jason Tatum, and there were some others. I mean, to me, that's a really good example of why the NBA is in a position to be a leader among sports because they have this dialogue between the people running the show and the main attraction, which is the players. And, and even for a younger guy like Jason, who's what, like 22 years old, mm-hmm. I mean, showing respect for this kind of cross section of opinion, I think to me, you know, you're having all the different groups and demographics represented, which I think puts the league in a, in a really good position to kind of move forward with the management and the players kind of all on the same page. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the NBA gets it. I mean, they, they get it better than any pro league that, you know, at the end of the day, when you put the cookies on the bottom shelf, players move the needle players, not owners, not managers. I don't care about the Jerry Jones of the world. I don't care about the, you know, the, the, the guys that have this flamboyant personality on the sidelines at the end of the day, players move the needle and when you're making decisions of this magnitude they have to have a voice at the table and that voice should not just be one voice uh and i i love the fact that they've got a young guy like jason tatum involved in those conversations you've got a sage veteran like chris paul guy like russell westbrook who's been around the block a little bit they've got different voices from different perspectives with different vantage points involved in those discussions and that's why the nba you know to me i'm not worried about them getting this right my biggest concern is how long will it take for them to get it right uh because i know the just the way they they operate they're not going to rush the process just because folks want them to rush the process they're going to take their time figure out what makes the most sense get as much input from as many people as they can and then make 
what they believe is the right decision. And make no mistake about it, like I alluded to earlier, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, the big dogs of the NBA have to be part of that buy-in because if they're not on board, it ain't sailing. Well, it does it does seem like they're in on the buy-in so far. I mean, and we're all just watching. I agree with you, though. I definitely give Adam Silver credit for what seems to be an ongoing dialogue and acknowledging that both sides are going to have to make sacrifices. I certainly hope you're right that they make smart decisions that is done safely and that we can begin to move on um, a little bit, I guess, from this COVID-19 business. But, you know, Bruce Sherrod is a big Celtics guy, so he's got some special Celtics things. That's what I heard. (laughs) So, So we started this show. You didn't hear this, but when you were on with us back in May of 2019, Kyrie Irving was still on the team. I know, right? It was almost a year ago this week, believe it or not. Uh, and Kyrie Irving was still on the team. And the clip that we ran from you at the very top of the show, where we kind of go previously on Bucket Sports and Blocks, and you're ta- you were talking about how Jason, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jalen Brown really had to sacrifice a lot of his own growth when Kyrie was on the team, uh, as far as because because Jalen could score, but you know Kyrie was very ball dominant, so Jason wasn't really getting as much offensive action as he wanted to and he had to focus on other things and you said and 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 when Kyrie left I thought Jalen really blossomed this year and in addition to his game I mean his leadership skills I think he's an incredible young leader among NBA players I mean as far as like his mindset and how he approaches things so I just want to give you a little props for being right about that when when Kyrie went out the door Jalen just like blew up all over the place I mean, it, it almost felt as though, like, uh, you know, if, if you had to do, like, a cartoon skit of the, our relationship, it's almost like as soon as Kyrie walked out the door, before that door could fully close, Jalen Brown was in there like, let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> I love that. He love is, uh, he, he's one of my favorite people, not just on the team, but in the NBA, just because he, from the very moment he got to Boston, had this I'm bigger than the game mentality. And that and that's not saying that, you know, um I'm just this almighty great thing. No, he had bigger interest than the game. I mean he uh you know very involved in, in just p- politics. Uh he's a big Silicon Valley guy. Um I, I know he's involved in, in with with some you know off the field you know activities that are going to literally pay off for him down the road. Uh, I know that, for example, his old high school, he's he's involved with their academic curriculum to help them plan some things from an academic standpoint for for kids in the future. Uh, Some of the things I know he was involved with prior to the season shutting down. Uh, Jalen Brown is as he's I mean, he's a renaissance NBA player in every sense of the word. Uh, Bigger than the game. Uh, I I do believe when all said and done, when, you know, 20, 30 years from now and, you know, we're thinking about Jalen Brown. I think basketball is going to be a very small footnote in his life. Um, he, I think he's – and I, and th- by no means does that mean he's going to have a crappy basketball career. I think he's going to be a really good player. I think he will be an all-star. But I just think that he's going to impact the world in such a bigger, better, grander way than that. Uh, like I said, Jalen's one of my favorite people uh, in the NBA just because he's – again, he's so much more than just a basketball player. He is not about that shut up and dribble world. That is not who he is. And, I, and I'm happy that he's not like yeah. that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's great. I, uh, you love to hear about guys that are really blooming, right? Beyond just the basketball court. But you guys sort of have this nucleus, Jalen, Jason, Marcus, who we all love. Give me all that love, grit. 
Marcus Smith. Then you throw in Kimba. Uh, having a, a decent season, like a, a solid season playoff team, just and this is not to belabor the point of Kyrie, Sherrod, and you know this, but that locker room, what, what what's that like now being up close with that squad? Uh, well, let's let's put it this way. It's uh, I, I look at some of the pictures that I see from Los Angeles today, and I look at some of the pictures I saw from Los Angeles like a year ago today. It's amazing how the level of smog has just kind of cleared away. Things seem a little more clear now. The sky is a little more brighter. The grass is a more greener. Food tastes a little bit better, even though it's the same food. That's kind of the vibe you get around the Celtics. That that after Kyrie left, things got a little bit better in a lot of ways that they didn't realize weren't so great before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's and again, not to not to, again not to beat up on Kyrie. I don't think Kyrie is a bad guy. I just think he was a bad fit for this team, and, and that's okay. It happens all the time. Um, Kyrie at least was smart enough to know that this is a place where I'm just not going to thrive. I'm not going to be able to be me. And these guys probably aren't going to get better with me being around here. So his decision to go to Brooklyn, while, yeah, it, you know, Celtics fans, you, you certainly hate the idea of losing a player with that level of talent. But when you're able to get Kimball Walker back in return, you could do better. I mean, excuse me, you could, you could do a lot worse in terms of consolation prize. And, you know, I, I went back and actually looked at their numbers recently and, and, uh, Kyrie was like 15 and seven in games he played against Kimba, but you're talking about the Charlotte Hornets who weren't very good and Cavaliers that kind of had LeBron for most of those years. So you can understand that. But when I start looking at the numbers, uh, scoring wise, pretty close 22 to 20 uh, assists were comparable shooting. Uh, Kyrie has an edge in a lot of categories, but by no means did he dominate Kimba. And if you're able to lose a guy that good in free agency, uh, Kyrie Irving, and you're able to get someone like Kimba who, may not necessarily be par for par overall talent, but in terms of fit is so much better. If you're the Celtics, you are, I mean, you're, you're doing backflips over that. Yeah. You know, you, uh, Monica had mentioned uh, Marcus Smart, who's one of all of our favorite players. Yes. In fact, I consider him, I consider him to kind of be the heartbeat of their team in a lot of ways uh, as Marcus goes. So Marcus uh, was one of the first players in that early batch that sort of, uh, you know, tested positive for the uh, for the COVID-19. Have you had a chance to speak to him at all recently? And I'm just curious, how's his recovery going? And he's done a lot in the community to help out, you know, people working hard and sharing his resources with the with the community. So just another reason to love him. But have you talked to him? How's he doing physically? Has his recovery gone well? Yeah, I mean, I've reached out to some of his people, and, and him and I, we, we've collaborated on on a couple of things. Uh, like I, like I, I've written a couple of pieces about some of the stuff he's done in the community, and and you know, given the PG, pediatric wards and, and things like that. He's real. That's that's uh, kind of his. That's his thing. Uh, he's really, really big in, in that that area. But he's doing well health wise. Uh, he, he's like the rest of his teammates. He's itching and ready to get back to playing. But he understands how important it is that when they do return, that they return to a relatively safe environment where they're not looking over their shoulder uh, Mm -hmm. and wondering if, you know, uh, if if a guy in the locker room, you know, you know, has maybe drinks his water a little too fast and starts coughing all of a sudden, wait, wait, are you okay? You, I mean, do we need to get you tested right now? Uh, You need, they need to get back so that they can get past those type of things. But, you know, smart is, is, you know, he's going to be okay. Um, and I, I love the fact that, you know, after he uh, tested positive and then, you know, shortly after that, um, he 
uh, donated his plasma so that they can see about, you know, folks who have actually gone through the COVID, who test positive for COVID-19 and then are then uh, COVID-free, uh, COVID-19 free, to see what their, whether their plasma can help others. And, and Marcus was one of the first to, to really volunteer to do that. And, and frankly, he, um, he was one of the first players. Actually, he was the first player other than Rudy Gobert and, and um, Donovan Mitchell to acknowledge that they had tested positive because players didn't have to do it. Uh, early on, teams will release a statement saying that we had one player test positive or we had two players test positive. But players were not required to reveal that they were uh, the one, and Smart did. Uh, and so, again, he, he's, a stand, he's one of the more stand-up dudes I, I know, and um, I just love the fact that He's just such a badass, man. That's that's intense. That's my guy. Intense, yes. He will intense. get in your shit and mess with you, and it's beautiful to watch. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Love that intensity. All right, so real quick, and this, give me a short answer on this, Sherrod, because uh, we want to get to make sure we highlight our, our panel that you put together, esteemed leader of the sports task force last night. I had some talent on that panel. I had some you pretty know, good talent on that panel. A little bit. All right. So look, the asterisk season, as we're going to call it, I don't know why people are tripping about this season being shortened because nobody trips about the partial lockout. That was when I was in college. What was that? 2011, 2010? Yeah, Yeah. 2011 or 12, something like that. Yeah. So nobody trips about that. But anyway, if we do resume, I don't, there's a camp that believes that this break benefits some certain other teams. Does it change who you would have predicted to be the champ this year? And who is that? Well, I predicted that the Clippers would win it all. I, I, I just think that they, from top to bottom, they have talent, they have toughness, they have good coaching, and they've got a record that's going to allow them to keep home court advantage for most, if not all, of the playoffs. Um, this break doesn't change my mind about that. I, I think it's going to be tough with the Lakers being healthy, but the Clippers are the team that I, I predict, and I, I just love their team. Um, Patrick Beverly is the is one of my favorite dogs in the entire world. Um I would hate to play against him. Would love for him being on my team, though. Love it. Bruce? You know, I, 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 one of the things that I'm hoping that we'll still get a chance to experience, because this was the one of the biggest things that I was, like, sad about the season possibly ending. I want the Lakers and the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals, we'll seven games at the Staples Center, we'll seven home Vegas. games. It'll be Orlando or Vegas. Well, Okay, yeah, good point. That's what I wanted. Seven ga- seven home games for both teams. It would have been the best basketball ever. And it would have been so set up for everybody to be at their absolute best. Yeah. So, you know, you're right, Monica. It ain't happening at the Staples. That's why I know I should be at the table this, Sherrod. But, okay, so, boom, we resume the season. We end up playing a championship in, what, October? I'm pushing it September, October? What are we talking about? What does it do the next season? I'm going to go with September. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with September, and that would allow the season to, I think, presume or the next season to start. I would, I would say November, December. I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk about starting the season on Christmas Day, which I think, from a build-up standpoint, would work. Uh, because remember, we, we're talking about the end of this season, and we're talking about next season. But in between that, you've got free agency, you've got the draft. So you've got to factor in those two uh, major, major parts of, of teams, you know, team building. So I, I think I think you're looking for a late fall start at the earliest to next season. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay because I, I like the fact that you, you could potentially have college football, NBA basketball, NHL, 
all pretty much having a game every day of, mm-hmm. a, of a major sports team. And if for a sports junkie like myself, guilty, yeah. um, you're talking about heaven on earth right now. <laughs> if I get that, you're talking about heaven on earth where I can get, I can get something every single day. Um, yeah. We're also talking about a fantastic, elaborate, and well-deserved vacation by the time all of those seasons come to an end. Those of us There's that. that. <laughs> all right. So last night I had the privilege of hopping on a fantastic webinar with our NABJ um, Sports Task Force folks that you coordinated alongside Jamel Hill with her fantastic podcast, uh, uh, F Bothered, and LaChina Robinson, Around the Rim, a friend of the show. Um, just from a uh, coordinator standpoint, were you pleased? And what was the feedback? I was pleasantly, uh, not surprised, but just pleasantly uh, appreciative of the amount of folks that that really uh, were looking. I was hoping that if we could get like 100 people to register for that, I, I'd be very happy. And we had like uh, close to 250. Um, wow. And so that was really, really good to see. Um, I, I thought the, the questions were really engaging. I thought Jamel had a really good pulse for how to keep the conversation moving without it slowing down and being stagnant while also utilizing some of the questions that people uh, received. Uh, I found myself afterwards being a little bit of a filter uh, because, you know, some of the some of the fellas were uh, real interested in a certain uh, Monica McNutt. And a uh, certain LaChina Robinson, because Jamel flashed the ring, so she was off limits. Uh, so I found myself doing a, doing a little Chuck Willery action today and just <laughs> weeding out, doing a little weeding out process. And, and Monica, you'll be happy to know that I got rid of the scrubs. You ain't got to worry about the scrubs. I took I, care of all of them. All you done. Out for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> Kwani Lunas, a, a friend of yours, she knows all too well about me and, and getting rid of the scrubs that want to be in your lives. I, I'm not having it, so we love you're Kwani. good. Kwani's you're another good. one who's been uh, on the show. Well, again, Sherrod, I appreciate you for coordinating, asking me to join. I had a blast in that conversation. And it's super dope to see, you know, people's creative wheels turning because this pandemic can put a damper on folks. I was very honest. Bruce, you know, you you kept me going when I was like, Mm-mm, no, I don't have it. Um, so it was, it was a really dope conversation. Right, and we're going to keep uh, keep it going with the different sessions. We're going to have another one Tuesday, uh, 7 o'clock p.m. There will be more information uh, on that coming out. And also we have, uh, if, if in case folks want to check out Monica, uh, it's on our uh, NABJ Sports Task Force YouTube channel, uh, which we – that was the first piece of content we put on that. We were saving it for a special occasion. Uh, so, so we got that up and running. That's, that's up and running. Uh, couple, it's a couple hours old now, in fact. Uh, so definitely check that out. And uh, like I said, we, we have a series. We call it the uh, Innovation and Isolation Series. We're going to be looking at different aspects of journalism. Uh, we talked about podcasting, which Monica uh, was on. We're also going to get into social media and focus on IG Live and how folks are utilizing that uh, while we're in quarantine. And then we're going to have another session probably in two weeks on just the art of storytelling. And that one is going to be awesome, amazing, and all that, and then some soon. We love it. We love it. Listeners, if you're not hip to NABJ, get on board. It's some really great things happening in that space. All right, Sherrod, you know how we wrap up on this here podcast. I don't want to ask you to be um, let's uh, optimistic, right? So I'm, I'm okay. taking away your choices. You're not going to give me a board or a block. You're going to give me a bucket. Uh-uh, you can give me a bucket or a board that you have found in the midst of this pandemic. You need the definition again? You remember what those yeah, are? Yeah, hit me, hit me with the definition again. I'm so- the bucket is the A++ thing. You want more of this thing. 
Okay. The board is like a rebound, has a little silver lining to it. Maybe didn't look so great at first, but there's some redeeming qualities and positive things about it. Which okay. one have you found in the pandemic? Oh, buckets. Uh, listen, uh, the content that people are putting out uh, has been amazing. I'm a big music fan and club quarantine has been yeah. my go-to spot. In fact, it's, it's, it's somewhere where I've been able to actually connect with folks who I've actually I'm lining up for podcasts down the road. Uh, so it's not only helped me from a just a mental health standpoint to have a nice release, but it's also helped with the J-O-B and get me some original content that I can put on the website and keep the readers engaged. So Love to see it. How you like that, Bruce? I'll tell you what, Sherrod representing the 315 in a big, big way. Thank in case you. I don't know about the 315, <laughs> There it is. There it is. There it is. And on that note, we're going to end this pod. Those that can't see it, have a spiritual cat. You know I ain't about that life. But Gerard, thank you so much for your time. Mahoya, homie. I got you, girl. <laughs> that was dope. Thanks to my brother, my colleague, my friend, my personal security guard, as you saw there. A. Sherrod Blakely, the Boston Celtics insider for NBC Sports Boston. His insight on all things NBA makes us all smarter, so shout out to him. Thanks also to my producer, loyal sidekick, and co-host, co-host, that is, Bruce Bernstein, who never misses a Celtics game and, like Sherrod, is proud of his Syracuse alum status. He paid me to say that. Anyway, the editor, Ben Wolfen, he's fantastic. He makes us all sound good. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. this week. The Mike Wise Show featured a detailed breakdown of The Last Dance with some classic MJ remarks by David Stern from Mike's interview with the late commissioner in October 2019. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin has a great interview this week with BJ Armstrong, who has had almost as much fame as MJ from The Last Dance in terms of FaceTime. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams has Cole Anthony of North Carolina, a probable lottery pick in the NBA draft. BJ is back with Eric Newman on the Pure Hoops podcast, which drops on Friday every week. And I'm back next Thursday with a brand new edition of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks from Pure Hoops Media. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Please remember to pray for all the nurses, doctors, and other frontline workers keeping our society going through these tough times. We owe all of them a great debt. Continue to follow social distancing guidelines. Wash your hands. Wear your mask to protect yourself and others. Until we meet again, if you like buckets, boards, and blocks, please subscribe, rate us, review, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. That would be fantastic. Enjoy the final two episodes of The Last Dance, and wherever you can find them, enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 